recording this on Anzac Day 2022, which for us is the 25th of April for my international listeners, and had an interesting experience today. Look, this intro is going to go on for a minute, so totally cool if you want to fast forward through to Earth's Forbidden Secrets Part 6. However, I've had pretty short intros recently and just got a couple of things I wanted to have a quick chat about before we get into this one. Two of my daughters were part of the Anzac Day uh, March today and I've always had interesting and mixed feelings about Anzac Day for personal reasons. However, you know, it's with Afghanistan what happened there last year and it's just some interesting stuff going on as far as what war means to us and and what it actually is now. However, super proud that my girls got to see and be part of that and super proud to see a small rural community have hundreds and hundreds of people at their ceremony this morning. Now, over the last couple of years, I don't know what's happened to our society. We're being steered down the rabbit hole. And obviously, it's not something that I've spoken about a lot recently because I needed to step away from that and step back from it. However, it's still going on. I just figured I still needed to continue my research in between now and then. So that's what I've been doing. Also, as a distraction from the chaos that continues to ensue around us. So what I saw today was that the the Aussie soul, the Aussie spirit, isn't dead. All those people were there for their own reasons. However, they came together, hundreds of random people, and we actually, most of us sung Advance Australia Fair, and most people sung the song I Am Australian, because being an Aussie is a unique perspective and a unique way to exist. So I was very touched by what I saw in my local community today. I've also, you know, we used to dedicate a percentage of stuff to men's mental health and sitting down and figuring out and dealing with our demons and our emotions and don't think that that work hasn't stopped behind the scenes. Prior to recording this introduction, I just spent some time working with some brilliant men and it's a it's a safe space so I won't mention their names but you boys know who you are if you listen and that was an amazing beautiful experience where we are trying to work through and truly understand and do that deep shadow work and try and find that balance the god self the triptych which we've discussed here access the magic of that that is inside us all and I think for those men that take the time to listen to this we've got to do the work boys and girls for that matter however I see big deep dark issues with men and we've lost our way and we are out of balance and we need to find that balance and that only comes through doing the work Is it pretty? No. Is it satisfying? Yes, in a lot of ways. Does it hurt? Yes. Does it suck? Yes. However, nothing worth doing was easy. And I think we will be delving back down into some of that stuff. And I will dip my toe back into the current situation. I'm currently talking to a couple of very interesting people with some interesting perspectives about that. However... Whatever's coming, 
in order to face that, we must be the God self. And we must face our shadows, deal with our demons, look at the sides of self that we don't and won't and sometimes can't but should look at and acknowledge. The shadow self and the shadows in the darkness can be terrifying. However, what we all don't understand is the power of our own light. And it's our own light that lights that darkness and those shadows and reveals them for what they are and allows us to accept and deal and move forward and past and through them. And I'm reminded of a... Look, I've still got two t-shirts, two large tie-dye t-shirts in the cupboard and they have in purple writing, feeling is healing. And that was a, came out of a Maddie Noonan podcast way back in the day. And that is more true now to me than it ever was then. Feeling is healing. The thing about feelings is a lot of them aren't good or great. However, feeling is healing. And with that, I will be quiet. As I say, this is part six, Earth's Forbidden Secrets. And as always, really enjoy this. Me and Angus really enjoy recording these ones. Uh, they're an escape for us. We hope they're an escape for you. Remember, we're on Patreon, Unlocking the Code, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I'm doing some very interesting work with the boys at Subconscious Realms and the Occult Rejects that will come out in the near future. So give those guys a listen. Please stay safe. Please be kind. Be cool. Look after yourselves. Be disciplined. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. Just want to go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you. Been here before. No surprises settle the score. I know the darkness deep inside. Reckless rage, poison pride. I know the anger. I know the pain. through I know you I know you Wow Uh, so, we're back. and we are back. We actually have, we have, uh, we must say. We, we have an apology to we make. We have an apology to make. <laughs> <laughs> we lost track.
We lost track of what episode we're up to in That's the right. last one. We thought we were up to four. But we weren't. Last episode was five. Last episode was five. This one is six. This one is six. Yeah. We had to take our sh- we had to take our shoes off to to, <laughs> to to count it so we could figure out where we were. But we are back with uh, Earth's Forbidden Secrets Part Six. And as usual, we got a couple of articles to start, mate. And we'll just I think we'll just jump straight in. Let's do this. Uh, you go I'll, first. I'll go first, mate. So I'm going to do the Philadelphia experiment. New files suggest. Oh, so who? who oh, let's do a one? thank you. A thank you. Sorry, Grant, Shane, Troy, Tony, Abdul, and Joseph gave us a wow. So I figured he needs a thanks, Joseph. Joseph Legendo. He's got a nice mountain bike in his uh, picture too. So ah, nice. Uh, might just expand this just two seconds, just to give me a little bit. Uh, these eyes aren't what they used Poor to be. Poor old eyes. Yeah. Poor old eyes. So this is the Philadelphia experiment, right? And look, those of us that have been in the rabbit hole, we know what the Philadelphia experiment is. I should say, I've got a boxing kangaroo pen. Just uh, that's the podcast pen. It was a birthday present for my girls, man. It's no man. It's it's, it's got, amazing. It's got sunglasses on and everything, man. Yeah, dude, that is the coolest boxing kangaroo I've ever seen. <laughs> I love it. That was a cute little present. It bloody is. Uh, righto. Where were we? Philadelphia experiment. We all know anyone that's in the hole, Area 51, all that sort of stuff. We know about the Philadelphia. We've heard. We, we've heard, right? So let's let's see what uh, by admin. This is admin. Admin's letting us know this one. Thank you, admin. In the middle of World War II, an American battleship put a technology designed by Einstein himself to the test and managed to become invisible and teleport. This is how the Philadelphia experiment was born. And yeah, that's what we yeah, the, a ship was in a harbor, they did something to it, and it vanished. Yep. And theoretically existed, it didn't exist. Let's see. This is at least what some computer can be blah, 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 come on, dude. Conspiracy theorists say. Here is the true story of the USS Elridge, the ship that traveled back in time. What is popularly known as the Philadelphia experiment or Philadelphia experiment. Alludes to a supposed dark program. Oh, this is one of those. Yeah, it ones. is. These ones we these were selected quickly. Let's just say, yeah, these uh, were not vetted. No, uh, suppose a dark program of the U.S. Navy called Project Rainbow. Legend has it that the military were testing an electromagnetic field generator, electromagnetic field generator, with which they were trying to find practical applications to the unified field theory proposed by Albert Einstein. In one sentence, they wanted to achieve invisibility. Private technicians who would not know that they were installing would help would equip two powerful generators, dozens of meters of electrical cable around the hull and other complex electronic devices to the USS Elridge, a 93 meter long battleship. On July 22, 1943, this first supposed experiment would take place. The generators activated an electromagnetic field that made the battleship disappear from view for a few minutes surrounded by a greenish mist. Some sailors complained, complained of severe nausea caused by the test. Well, you, I'd imagine so. If you just had a massive electromagnetic field, like just... Yeah, it'd probably fucking scramble yeah, you scr- scramble your sister. Uh, the, equi- the equipment was readjusted and the second test took place on October 28. This time, the entire ship completely disappeared and appeared at the Navy base back in Norfolk, 600 kilometres away and 15 minutes in the past. And that's interesting. That's interesting. He was sighted during there, sighted there during that time. After that, he disappeared again in the middle of a blue lightning to return to Philadelphia. I'm guessing he was Eldridge. He was the ship, I'd imagine. 
Official statements from the Navy. As they say, the consequences of this second experiment were so devastating for the crew that the Navy decided to cancel the project. Most of the sailors developed schizophrenia and some completely lost their minds. Many were seriously injured when they materialized and others, less fortunate, fused horribly with the ship's hull. Some faded days after the experiment and never reappeared. This is, broadly speaking, the most gruesome story perpetuated by theorists, ufologists and some science fiction movies. The Navy has always denied the existence of the Philadelphia experiment. In a statement released in November 2000, the Navy Office of Naval Research completely denied the existence of any visibility or teleportation programs, as well as Einstein's involvement. Well, we know that's not. Einstein assisted with the atomic research as well. Like, he was in there. Mm -hmm. Um, He had connections. But between 1943 and 1944, Einstein worked part-time consultant for the Navy on theoretical research on explosives and blasting. Of course, there is no evidence that Einstein has worked on anything related to invisibility or teleportation. How then did the Philadelphia experiment come to light? The answer is through a series of letters sent by Carl Meredith Allen under the pseudonym Carlos Miguel Allende. Allegedly, Allen was a merchant marine who saw the USS Eldridge disappear from his own ship, the SS Andrew Furuseth. Allen described the alleged teleportation experiment in a correspondence with the writer and ufologist Morris Jessup. That's a name we know, Morris Jessup. I've heard it. Yeah. Although the Marine never provided any credible proof of what he said, Jessup was fascinated by the story, including the book called The Case for the UFO. Continue with more information in the following video. Okay. We didn't see that one. We're not going to play the video. We're not playing the video. Look, it's a, it's a, there's a little couple of details that I hadn't seen there before. So, you know, did it happen? Man, is it all a psyop? Yeah, you know, was it? Are we meant to be doing this? Yes. Who knows? And the thing is, if you got teleported six hundred k's away, fifteen minutes in the past, I imagine that you probably not prepared for that. Uh, well, <laughs> imagine if you came back part of the ship's hull. That's right. How fuck's that going to be? That's right. <laughs> and still alive. Yeah, with a hull through. You. With a hull through. You. Yeah. yeah. That would suck ass. Yeah, I mean, what are you, what are you going to do? You like, I'd, what are, yeah, what are you going to do? Did it happen? I don't know. Mm, it's an interesting, it's a one. tough one, but it's an interesting theory, and it's uh, it's a you know, it's a fun one to venture down on yeah, those late yeah, night yeah. explorations. That's right. I'm sure the video would be very convincing. <laughs> and there's some amazing videos out there about it. You know? Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to my one. Your one is the Lycurgus Cup. We now, also need to make another apology. To Leslie. Because Leslie is a girl. So Leslie's a lovely lady. She's a lovely lady who obviously follows the page and thank you very much. And she's much liked a few Leslie. different things. So, and she has. And, so and Leslie liked this one as well. Yeah. Um, so and the also the other reason we're doing it is because we mentioned this cup with no name. Yeah. In in the last episode. Yeah, episode. So four we thought, four. hey, this is cool. Yeah. Now at least those who listened to the last one can now have an article it, yeah. about it. You can yeah. expand upon the idea. Mm. So let's move on. Lycurgus Cup. Evidence of nanotechnology used 1,600 years ago. Did you want me to make that a little bit bigger for you, mate? Yeah, just, mate. Just, just a touch. Blow it up a little bit, please. Look. Yep, beautiful. There we go. And uh, scram it down. According to scientists, nanotechnology was first discovered in ancient Rome nearly 1,700 years ago. And it is not... And it... And it is not one of many samples of modern technology attributed to our sophisticated society. A chalice 
made sometime between 290 and 325 is the ultimate proof. 325 watts. Uh, 1700 years ago. So what's that? BC, AD, AD. Mm. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Between 290 and 325 is the ultimate proof that ancient cultures used advanced technology thousands of years ago. Nanotechnology is probably one of the most important milestones in recent decades. The technological explosion has allowed modern man to work with systems between 100 and a billion times smaller than a meter, where the materials obtain particular properties. However, the beginning of nanotechnology dates back at least 1,700 years. But where is the evidence? Well, a relic dating back to the time of the Roman Empire, known as the Lycurgus Cup, seems to show that ancient Roman craftsmen knew about nanotechnology 1,600 years ago. The Lycurgus Cup is an outstanding representation of ancient technology. You it's an interesting see, little gif there. You, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you're watching on on the video, you can see a little gif as a the cup is exposed to. Uh, I'm guessing it's light. light they've yeah. they've moved a light around behind it, and it turns into red from like a green. And it's very well carved. Very well carved. Yeah. The Lycurgus cup is considered among the most technically sophisticated glass objects produced before the modern era. Experts firmly believe that the chalice that was made between 290 and 325 AD, the definitive proof that shows how ingenious the ancient craftsmen were. Another side of there. It's interesting. It's very well done, very finely, very ornate. Let me just read that uh, yeah. thing there. The cup is an example of diatrida or cage cup type where the glass was cut away to create figures in high relief attached to the inner surface with small hidden bridges behind the figures. The cup is so named as it depicts the myth of Lycurgus entwined in a vine. Okay. Yeah, right. That's the that's the whole idea behind it. So, yeah. Um, moving on. The images of small glass sculptures portrayed in the chalice depict scenes from the death of King Lycurgus of Thrace. Although the glass appears to the naked eye to be a dull green color, when a light is placed behind it, they show translucent red color. Effect. The, they show yeah. a true translucent red color. Yeah. The effect achieved by the embedding of small particles of gold and silver in the glass, as reported by the Smithsonian Institution. Mm, they liked this one. It yeah, agreed they, with their paradigm. Yeah, they, they let this one through. <laughs> the tests revealed interesting results. So when British researchers examined the fragments through a microscope, they found that the diameter to which the metal particles were produced were equal to 50 nanometers. That is equivalent to one thousandth of a grain of salt. This is currently difficult to achieve, which would have meant a huge development absolutely unknown at the time. Furthermore, experts indicate that the exact mixture of precious metals in the composition of the object shows that the ancient Romans knew exactly what they were doing. Since 1958, the Lycurgus Cup remains in the British Museum. Of course it does. Of course it does. <laughs> I saw a meme. It's like, you know, 
you, you shouldn't steal things and then yeah. walk around the British Museum. <laughs> Ancient nanotechnology that really works, but how that works? Well, when the light hits a glass, the electrons that belong to the metallic spots tend to vibrate in ways that alter the colour depending on the position of the observer. However, simply adding gold and silver to glass does not automatically produce that unique optical property. Mm. To achieve this, a process so controlled and careful is required that many experts rule out the possibility that the Romans could have produced this amazing piece by accident, as some suggest. What's more, the very exact mixture of metals suggests that the Romans came to understand how to use nanoparticles, they found that adding precious metals to molten glass could tint it red and produce unusual color-changing effects. Interesting. So, yeah, how did they powder the the gold to that fine? Yeah, how did they get it that small? Yeah. How did they know how to measure it to make it sure there was exact quantities in the liquid? Mm. How did then did that? You know, like, yeah. No, how do you get down? How do you make that happen? And you don't just make one. Mm. You know, like, yeah. Yeah, 100%. You don't just make one. No. But according to the researchers in the study, the cup of Lycurgus Roman nanotechnology, it was way too complicated a technique to last. However, centuries later, the wonderful cup was the inspiration for contemporary contemporary nanoplasmonic research. Nanoplasmonic, that's word of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. Gang Logan Liu, an engineer at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Urbana-Champaign said, the Romans knew how to make the use of nanoparticles to achieve beautiful art. We want to see if this could have scientific applications. The original 4th century AD Lycurgus Cup, probably taken out only for special occasion, Ritual, ritual stuff of course that's Moloch's blood you drink from that yeah but only <laughs> depicts King Lycurgus ensnared in a tangle of grapevines presumably oh. for evil acts committed against who Dionysius here he goes Dionysus, again Dionysus the Dionysus. Greek god of wine or Bacchus or Bacchus or Bacchus or Bali yeah if inventors manage to develop a new detection tool from this ancient technology, it'll be Lycurgus's turn to do the ensnaring. 21 naughtiest wedding pictures. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got to love ads embedded yeah. in this crap, don't yeah. you? Man, that's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah and definitely. I'm glad that we I'm glad that we did that and had a bit of a look, a deeper look at the Lycurgus Cup. And yeah, thanks again to Leslie for uh liking that one yeah and Um, you know that's for everyone who was like if it piqued your interest mm. when it was mentioned in the last episode there's a little bit more information on it Mm. i think that what i'm finding the big problem with these episodes man is that there's so much like given Mm -hmm. the given the time and the resources yeah we could release an episode every couple of days you know what i mean yeah (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) you could you could make this a thousand part series yeah 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 just yeah. delving into every little piece of info, especially especially twenty odd years later. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Like it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So we actually we actually finished the last chapter on oops 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 arts oops arts. Uh, now we're on to chapter three, 
of Lost Explorers and Ancient Mysteries. And this is episode six. Six, not five. Not five. Four, which was five, but it's okay. Uh, I don't, I actually haven't had a look as to, oh yeah, it does sort of the same thing. It does got little tidbits. Okay. So that's cool. You want me to start, my friend? Yeah, you can do the first one. You've done a lot of heavy lifting in the last episode. You can do the first one. Our journey now moves onto the vast areas of rainforest nestled in the northern reaches of South America. The jungles of the Andes are an environment that can be likened to nowhere else on Earth. High in the jagged mountains in areas such as the Mato Grosso region of Brazil, the jungle is some of the most dense and unforgiving in the world. The great explorer, Percy Fawcett, had called the area the roof of the world, and he was right. High in the heavily wooded mountains, even still there are no towns, roads, or known inhabitants of any kind as far as can be seen. LIDAR might have something to say about that. There's just a continuous undulating blanket of dense green jungle broken occasionally by jagged mountain peaks crumbling skyward and snaking rivers that teem with piranha and huge crocodilian. The thick jungle in between them is populated by countless species of insects, spiders, enormous spiders, monkeys, and other more terrifying predators. Black- Those enormous spiders freak me out, by the way. I know, right? They you freak know, me just, out. just as a side note, right? We may have like all the most deadly stuff in the world, but the fact that like people have like, massive tarantulas yeah and they're like oh, they're so calm you know they're so peaceful it's like dude the fangs are an inch long yeah on that sucker yeah i don't want to get stabbed with them no you know like that's and like the giant bird eating spiders in the jungles and stuff man oh that yeah me yeah well i think we got the biggest one though our our goliath spider in north queensland is not the biggest as in the tarantulas, yeah. but of the bird-eating spiders. Oh, right. I'm pretty sure ours is the biggest bird-eater. Yeah, right. Because ours still, it still has a web. It sits in a web. Yeah, a big giant. And it's like a tarantula web. that f- makes a web. Yeah. So that's pretty sick. Yeah, but while, while we're just talking, uh, one of the theories that, and again, Bob has, um, he's sort of talking about this as well, like, all this stuff, the Andes, South America. Was there a massive cataclysmic event that pushed all of this stuff? Like we're looking, those peaks are like that's plates coming together or whatever. Yeah. Because yep. they find seashells and stuff up in the mountaintops up there. Oh yeah. So yeah. it's like once upon a time that was covered in water. Yeah. Were some of this was some of this stuff in South America, like it was a civilization, then it was just forced up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just 100%. some cataclysm happened, and it actually got forced into the sky. It could have, it could have quite, yeah, possibly happened way quicker than what is theorized. That's right. Because when they set out the theories of plate tectonics, they they extrapolate back off of what they've studied now. Yeah, that's right. And they they average it out across a span of time. Yeah. They don't account for cataclysmic events of crustal impact and deformities and stuff like that. So, mate the theories that we have and the timelines that we work with, it's only, we can only use what we can. It's the best. Boom. You took the words out of my mouth. Were they even in my mouth? I don't know if they were, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Where were you, mate? You were. I was somewhere around uh, crocodilians. Enormous spiders. spiders Monkeys and other more terrifying predators. Black panthers. (laughs) 
and giant anacondas, the largest and most feared snakes in the world. It is a place where the moist forest air itself is alive with all manner of hidden and still yet unknown compounds. Primitive tribes still live in these remote areas, and it's possible that some areas may yet be inhabited by other tribes that are even still unknown. When the intrepid Fawcett had gone missing in the area in 1925, every major metropolitan newspaper in the entire world had announced the disappearance of the expedition. Oh, excuse me. It's okay, mate. They can see of the, the expedition organized by Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett in the mysterious region of Mato Grosso, in the heart of Brazil, in search of the lost city of. Old Dorado, yeah, exactly. He's always the lost city. Colonel Fawcett was certainly not the first to venture into the wilds of the South American jungles, nor the last. He is, however, if not one of the most famous, undoubtedly the most daring, and his story is almost certainly one of the most intriguing. The diaries of Percy Fawcett have inspired many Hollywood movies pertaining to lost worlds and mysterious jungle treasures. I was going to say, I'm, I'm just wondering because my memory evades me. Hmm. Is Are we about to hear the story about, remember, there's a story on Rogan yeah. where um, traveling along the Amazon, it was reported that there were cities all along um, teeming with life and stuff like that. Yeah, and then they went back. Now, that was earlier, wasn't it? It was in the 1600s? It was somewhere around there. But basically what it was, was what it's theorized to be was the arrival of Westerners yeah, made pretty much killed everybody. Yeah, disease and, then, or and then when they went back 100 to 200 years later, no was there. there was no evidence of all of this stuff that was reported. And it's theorized that it's yeah, it was possibly the first explorers that, that brought disease with them. Yeah. Yeah, look. So, we don't have sorry, history. guys. Moving right along. Colonel Percy Fawcett had been a retired official in the British Army, a veteran fighter of the Boer Wars in India during the late 1800s, an explorer of outstanding reputation and considered by his peers to be an expert bushman in any class of forests or other rugged terrains in 19... Sorry. Any rather rather terrains. I just... uh, Getting a little bit blurry here. I didn't see that full stop. Uh, So in 1906, he was requested by the British government to survey the borders between the countries of Bolivia and Brazil. At the time, both the Brazilian and Bolivian governments had wanted their borders properly defined once and for all in order to quell the constant erupting border disputes they were experiencing. Disputes they were afraid would soon lead to open war between their two countries. Of course, and in true political fashion, neither country had trusted the other to do the job fairly. So eventually both countries agreed that only a neutral party could suffice for the task. The Royal Geographic Society of Britain had then recommended Fawcett for the job. Yeah, because yeah, Britain's really a neutral party. Yeah, they, they never had any, you know, agenda. Fawcett had agreed and had agreed and traveling by canoe and foot over roughly an 18 month period in 1906 to 07 he surveyed and mapped the borders of the two countries using a compass and a sextant 
a, a sextant. Yeah, sextant. A staggering feat given the conditions he faced and the I was terrain. Just about he to say that, like that dude is like in a canoe. He's a he is a fucking weapon. Yeah, like <laughs> what are you gonna do? I'm just gonna go along the river and climb mountains for eighteen months to draw a line. Yeah, yeah. Let's get after it. That's pretty cool. Get after it. Yeah. Little picture. Matto Grosso. It's that's right the, the old Matto Grosso. Right in the middle of the jungle. Right in the thickness. Yeah. The thickest part. Yeah. All right. During the four-year period from 1908 to 1912, he had then continued further, also successfully surveying the boundary of Paraguay and the border between Peru and Brazil. Then, Fawcett's mind began to turn toward the undertaking of various explorations in the region. Finally, when embarking upon a new expedition from a place deep in the Brazilian jungle that he had named Dead Horse Camp, he wrote his last letter to his wife, May 29th, 1925. In the letter, he said this to her, Our route will be from Dead Horse Camp, 11 degrees 43 seconds south, and 54 degrees and 35 seconds west, where my horse died in 1921, roughly northeast to the Zingu, visiting on the way an ancient stone tower, which is the terror of the surrounding Indians. As at night, it is lighted from door and windows. If we do not return, I desire not that you organize any rescue game. It is too dangerous, for if I... Wish all my with all my experience fail, then not much hope is left in the triumph of others, and I would not encourage such an attempt. That is one of the reasons of why I do not say exactly where we go. One thing is doubtless the answer to this enigma, and perhaps to the prehistoric world, it will be found when these old cities that have been located and are open to scientific research because the cities exist of that i am certain you need have no fear of failure and those were the last words that anyone ever heard of him and how many explorers went before him looking for the city mm. and it like yeah and you i suppose with google earth and stuff like that you would think you'd have we'd have a better understanding but the foliage is so thick through there the triple canopies and like it's like oh 100% the mountain ranges and the yeah yeah exactly you, like look at that yeah can't penetrate that yeah except for with lidar yeah if you had lidar it'd be a bit different <clears throat> Fawcett entrusted the letter to no one <laughs> to no way. one no yeah, one to no one anyone of three assistants <laughs> Fawcett entrusted the letter to one of three assistants who had helped the expedition thus far having told them that he no longer required their services. He had commented that a smaller group would look less like an invasion to the Indians and therefore be less likely to be attacked, an attitude that had, in fact, always been his policy. He said to his assistants that the route was carefully planned. He then disappeared into the jungle, taking with him his eldest son, Jack, and another man who was a close friend of Jack. None of them were ever seen or heard of again. Fawcett had been 50, 58 years 58 old at the years, time. And he just marching through the this jungle. This dude is doing well, mate. Yeah. Despite his wishes, 
several rescue missions were actually undertaken in an effort to discover what had become Fawcett and probably his son too. (laughs) Some fraught with disaster and all without success. There were also several reported sightings by various persons of a man matching Fawcett's description, though none of these reports were ever confirmed. Rumours still abound concerning his disappearance. Some have said they saw him living with a native tribe, attending to attending his son who had become too ill to travel. Some claim to have seen him wandering lost and crazed in the jungle, still searching. One claimed that he had been captured by headhunters and that he had even seen a shrunken head resembling Fawcett. It has even been speculated that he actually found his lost city of gold but that it will that it was still inhabited and he was never allowed to leave the diaries of percy fawcett were later published in a highly informative book entitled exploration fawcett later he released later re-released as lost cities lost trails i highly recommend reading these factual accounts of one of the truly great explorer, explorers, if the book can still be found, we got to we got to I've got we got to try and find that. Yeah, well, I've got. Okay, I might be able to do that. I've got a lost book contact. Right. Ah, you. Mm, yes. Mm. To this day, no one has yet fully explored the Mato Grosso region of Peru, and it still remains an area shrouded in legend and mystery. I wonder whether that's still true today. I wonder if they've run anything over mm, it. It'll be interesting. The intriguing story of Colonel Fawcett and his search for the lost cities he was so sure existed is one that could fill many books on its own. It began with a tantalizing tale Fawcett had heard regarding a man named Diego Alvarez. Alvarez had been a Portuguese mariner who had apparently reached South American shores a few years after the discovery of the American continent after being shipwrecked. He had struggled ashore in Peru and then began life, filled with everything you would find in a good adventure story. The tale he tells is one of survival in the savage jungles, captured by cannibals, bold escapes, daring adventures in fabulously rich gold and silver mines, fiercely guarded by hostile Indians deep in the thick jungles. Alvarez named the place as the Lost Mines of Morabica. He looks like a tough bastard, doesn't he? Eh? Mate, that dude will break your jaw. That's right. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> Do you want me to take over from here? Yeah, go on. Fawcett reported, because we don't know how this one's going to roll. Yeah, we don't know how long it is, yeah, so we yeah. might as well sub out, yeah. keep it keep it rolling. Fawcett is reported to have found an old document in Rio de Janeiro dated 1753 that spoke of Alvarez and tells of how another man of seemingly unknown origin, who Fawcett names only as Francisco Raposo, I must identify him by some name, had, that, had at the time decided to make an attempt to find the rich mines Alvarez had spoken of. Only according to Raposo, he had discovered no such mines. Instead, after climbing a narrow pass up a difficult mountain, he and his men had found hidden deep in the Amazon, at their feet about four miles away, a huge city. Raposo said this ancient and now uninhabited city was located in an area known as the Sierra 
Doe a Roncador, Snora or Blast is Mountain, near the Rio Zingu in northern, northeast Brazil. Raposo described the city as being very large and showing evidence of once being inhabited by a highly civilized people. Excuse me. <clears throat> he mentioned a city square, many cyclopean ruins, buildings still partially roofed with stone slabs, stone archways, columns, and statues. Many of Raposo's descriptions are quite detailed and also sound strikingly similar to the other Mayan ruins that have since been located that he could have obviously known nothing about in 1753, giving a great deal of credibility to the story and also going a long way to reinforce Fawcett's tale of his still yet to be rediscovered lost city, a city Fawcett referred to only as Zed. Sometime later, Fawcett himself also came to own a most unusual stone idol bearing some curious inscriptions in an unknown language that have still yet to be translated. He said that the idol generated electronic current that travelled up the arm of the person who was holding it. He eventually came to believe that his idol was connected to the lost cities he sought, cities he also firmly believed to be somehow have a connection with the legendary land of Atlantis. He describes the idol in his book. I have in my possession an image about 10 inches high, carved from a piece of black basalt. It represents a black basalt's also a very good conductor. It represents a figure with a plaque on its chest inscribed with a number of characters and about its ankle a band similarly inscribed. It was given to me by Sir H. Ryder Haggard, who obtained it from Brazil, and I firmly believe that it came from one of these lost cities. There is a peculiar property in this stone image to be felt by all who hold it in their hands. It is though an electric current were flowing up one's arm, and so strong is it that some people have been forced to lay it down. Why this is should be why this is why this should be, I don't know. Experts at the British Museum were unable to tell me anything about the idol's origin. There's a bit of a map there. Have a look at look at this. Unexplored, dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Unexplored, dangerous territory, right? Unknown mountains of gold and mystery reported to have been here. Yeah, right. Strange cold light in Tower of Brazilian Sight. Wow. Hmm. The black basalt image Fawcett spoke of is still a source of wonder and debate. As of yet, both the, both the writing that appears on the plaque and the character is holding and the writing on the ankle bands has not been deciphered. I would be more than happy to hear from anyone who may be familiar with this language or has found anything similar in another location. In the course of his extensive and very well-documented explorations, Fawcett discovered many other strange and unusual things. On one of his South American journeys, he lived among a tribe of white Indians known as Tapuyas. Tapuyas? Tapuyas is yeah, good to tapuyas, me. Yeah, describing them as follows. The Tapuyas tribe are as fair as the English and they have hands and feet that are small and delicate. His book also tells of another Amazon tribe who were red-haired and also fair-skinned. No surprise there. On one expedition, local Indians told him of a cave filled with markings or petroglyphs in an unknown language that exist at Valarica and have heard many stories about lost cities deep in the jungles. One tale in particular, a story recorded in manuscript form by Jesuit missionaries in the 1700s, told that in the jungles of Cuyaba, Brazil, somewhere in the Mato Grosso region, 
There are apparently strange bright lights that shed no heat, which Indians say have burned continually and quite unattended for many generations, and still burn today in the ruins of now uninhabited and long-dead cities. Just pause there for a second. There's another um, a meme I put up on the page, and it was there was a light. They found the tomb of a Roman emperor, mm-hmm. and he died. When they found the tomb, he had died two and a half thousand years ago or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a light, a lamp in the corner that was still burning. And they tried to put it out and they couldn't. The only way that they actually put it out was to take it apart and remove the wick from the the chemical substance that was in it. Yeah. And that was that was that was another bit of oopart that I, I haven't dug into, but the mm. reason I posted the page, I thought we gotta look back over look that back at that one. So uh Fawcett claims to have also seen these lights from a distance himself. It is rumoured by some that just an eternal cold light energy has also been found in ancient Roman and Egyptian tombs (laughs) and in areas of Tibet and India, although I'm unable to confirm these rumours. The reduction of such eternal cold light sources beyond our current level of technology still remains a puzzle to modern science. Okay, so this is the thing. This is the, the piece interesting it's like it's holding a tablet or something it's yeah. it's holding something that's presenting it's it's an interesting language isn't it it's like hieroglyph sort of stuff there's a triangle in there looks like an hourglass you know like it's a two with a weird thing in it mm-hmm. set of jaws maybe a nine i mean that's obviously just what we're that's yeah what we can attribute it yeah, to. yeah but um yeah no that's a it's a very interesting piece mm. Colonel Fawcett had first heard these strange stories some time after he had accepted his first survey contract. Until he had known of them, his South American expeditions were completely oriented towards civil and engineering work, though even while performing his daily tasks, he continued to nurture a keen interest in the forest. During his surveys, he also made copious amounts of notes containing detailed observations about everything he saw, especially in the ways of white settlers, the Indians of the forest, and the forest wildlife, all of which are recorded in detail in his book. However, after Fawcett became familiar with the story of Francisco Raposo, his attentions and interests began to shift away from just pure engineering and more toward ventures of exploration and discovery. I mean, you can only imagine the things he may have found in his surveys. Yeah. Like, you can only imagine. that. Would yeah, just... the, stuff that, the stuff that he was stumbling across that would have piqued his interest yeah, also. absolutely. In one place in his diaries, he records a remarkable conversation with another explorer concerning an unusual forest bird that nests in perfect round holes in rock cliffs. The man had actually spent 25 years living in the forest with the local natives and he had this to say. They make the holes themselves. I've seen how they do it many a time. I've watched, I have, and seen the birds come to the cliff with leaves of some sort in their beaks and cling to the rock like woodpeckers to a tree while they rub the leaves in circular motion over the surface. Then they would fly off and come back with more leaves and carry on with the rubbing process. After three or four repetitions, they dropped the leaves and started pecking at the place with their sharp beaks. And here's the marvellous part. They would soon open out a round hole in the stone. What did we, what did we learn about mm-hmm. the leaves and plants that can melt stone? Yep. Do you mean to say that the bird's beak can penetrate solid rock? No, I don't think the bird can get through solid rock. I believe, as everyone who has watched them believes that those birds know of a leaf with juice that can soften up rock till it's like wet clay. The man continued with a personal story about his nephew, 
He had walked through the thick bush to a nearby camp to retrieve his horse, which had gone lame. It had been left there temporarily. He noticed when he arrived that his new Mexican spurs had been eaten away almost completely. The owner of the camp asked him if he had walked through a certain plant about a foot high with dark reddish leaves. The young man had said he had walked through a wide area that was completely covered with such plants. That's it, they said. That's what's eaten your spurs away. And that's the stuff the Incas used for shaping stones. The juice will soften up, soften rock up till it's like paste. You must show me where you found the plants. But when they retraced the young man's step, they were unable to locate them. Well, there seems there's a bloody plant for everything else in the Amazon. You know what I mean? Like, Why would there not be a plant to soften rock? Yeah. A, there is also an interesting footnote to Fawcett's story about these birds that lend further credence to the tale. A man who had been a member of the Yale Peruvian expedition that had discovered Machu Picchu in 1911 wrote this strange story in his notes. Some years ago, when I was walking, working in the mining camp at Cerro del Pasco, placed 14,000 feet up in the Andes of central Peru, I went out one Sunday with some other gringos to visit some old Inca or pre-Inca graves to see if we could find anything worthwhile. We took our grub with us and, of course, a few bottles of pisco and beer and a peon, a cholo, to help us dig. Well, we had our lunch, and when we got to the burial place and afterwards started to open up some graves that seemed to be untouched, we worked hard, knocked off every now and then for a drink. I don't drink myself, but the others did, especially one chap who poured too much pisco into himself and was inclined to be noisy. <laughs> so old mate just, yeah, he didn't, he, he's, he's that bloke that doesn't do all the work, you know, he just yeah. sat there drinking piss, that's what he did. Uh, when we knocked off, all we had found was an earthenware jar about a quarter capacity with liquid inside it. I bet it's Chica, said the noisy one. Let's try it and see what sort of stuff the Incas drank. <laughs> uh, probably poisonous if we do, observes another. Tell you what then, let's try it on the peon. They dug the seal and stopper out of the jar's mouth and sniffed the contents and called the peon over to them. Take a drink of this Chica, ordered the drunk. The peon took the jar, hesitated, and with expression of fear spreading over his face, thrust in the drunk hands and backed away. No, no, senor. He murmured, not that. That's not Chica. He, he turned and made off. The drunk put the da jar down on a flat top rock and set off in pursuit. Come on, boys, catch him, he yelled. They caught the wretched man, dragged him back and ordered him to drink the contents of the jar. The peon struggled madly, his eyes popping. There was a bit of a scrimmage and the jar was knocked over and broken, contents forming a puddle on top of the rock. Then the peon broke free and took to his heels. Everyone laughed. It was a huge stroke but the exerciser made them thirsty and they went about the sack to where the beer bottles lay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, translation, a couple of boys went for a walk in the jungle on the piss to see if they could find something. Yeah. That's what happened. That's it. Then, <laughs> about 10 minutes later, I bent over the rock and casually examined the pool of spilled liquid. It was no longer liquid. The whole patch where it had been and the rock under it were as soft as wet cement. It was though the stone has melted like wax under the influence of heat. Wow. Interesting. The head of the Machu Picchu expedition, Hiram Bingham, also tells of a similar tale that was related to him by the natives of how the edges of great stones would be rubbed with the juices of a certain plant which would render them like clay and create the perfect joint. That's why it's mortalous. The possibility of such a plant existing is not at all unreasonable. There are still a myriad of undiscovered species in the Amazon basin. Unfortunately, though, due to the rapid rate of deforestation that is occurring there, we may be fast running out of time to find it. Bingy himself never put much faith in the story, as he can never conceive of how such enormous stones would have been lifted in the first place, 
for such rubbing of the edges to have taken place, let alone placed in the position in the wall. Local legends have always insisted the task was done by giants and being himself surmised that, that such could only be the case. The giant thing keeps coming around, man. It keeps coming around. Mm-hmm. It does keep coming around. Impossible buildings. The ability to soften stone would certainly go a long way in explaining the unique stonework sound in the Maya structures. And before you laugh off the thought of such as ludicrous, consider that many of the fortresses actually bear some very unusual markings that could be easily explained by tooling the surface while it was still soft. Scoop marks. Scoop. It should also only be realised, I should also be realised, that many of the stones used in these structures are truly immense, some as tall as three metres and virtually impossible to manoeuvre into place using our, any of our current expertise. And not to forget that some of the stones, like this famous one at Cusco, have up to 12 perfectly fitting angles, and that is just one of the ones that are visible on the face. Beneath the face and the back and side sections are also perfect, in fact so perfect that a razor blade cannot fit between the joints and it is the same. Yeah, that's the one you always see. That's massive though, that stone. Like people stand in front of that. Yeah. It's giant. The entirety of the wall on every block. Consider the fact when looking at the wall of Sacsayhuaman, apart from it resembling a wall made of grey Play-Doh, from a distance, such precision is yet impossible using any kind of cutting tool. And even if it were possible to cut the stones with such precision, how on earth would they have been manoeuvred into place? Presumably, they were hewn, then placed in the walls, a process which would have been repeated many times over for each block as fine adjustments were made to match the angles in order to reach the absolute precision obtained for each, for in every block. That's one of the things I, I how do you, you, you can't, do that at the quarry no it's got to be done on site on site because you don't know what angles you're you're going to deal be dealing with when you put it all together yeah but if if you just if you just see uh i guess i guess where i i see this taking polygonal masonry right is you just cut out whatever fucking shapes you want whichever way the stone yeah. breaks whichever way it comes out well i think it goes just, back to what we're talking about you have a knowledge of the stone it's like yeah that okay there's a crack through there oh, we just cut that off cut that bit off yada and, yada yeah hence where you get so many of the different angles yeah. of polygonal masonry yeah then you bring it then you bring your piece of stone back you wipe one side with this with, with the liquid with the compound yeah it softens you place it on top, yeah. right? Then you wet, you wet down the other sides. Mm. It softens. You push it into place mm. and it molds because the other stones are hard yeah. that are already making up that section. You push it into place. It mm. molds into that and then you let it harden. Then you move on to the next one. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. It's a good explanation. If, you know, if, if, if it exists, it's a, Easy way of understanding how it works. It's a bit like that, isn't it, mate? We're Mm. getting there. Such a method is not only implausible, but is nothing short of impossible. So it stands to reason that the obvious and somewhat disturbing explanation is that the joining edges quite simply were not cut in any conventional sense. It is known that the stones were in fact quarried and transported to the site for the quarries they came from have been located. 
but how were they worked into such perfection then transported the site which is located 13,000 feet four kilometers above sea level and how were the joints perfected when one looks at these Mayan structures they certainly do have the appearance of a wall that is made of clay and has has solidified again take the wall at Sacsayhuaman it seems enormously strange and also highly unlikely for the builders to have gone to such incredible trouble to make sure the stones fitted together with what is an absolutely ridiculous degree of perfection while using only the most difficult shapes imaginable, which is yeah, fair point, only then to leave the visible face of the wall virtually uncovered with a myriad of imperfections that makes them look rough and unfinished. Yeah, sucks, hey, well, mum. Mm. Love to go, honestly. I one day, I, my friend. One day, man. One day. To be honest, that is an interesting enough point in itself. But what does an even closer examination of some of these in, imperfections in the walls produce? Look at that. Scoopy doopy marks. Scoopy doopy. There is a section of a great wall at Tambo, Peru, which has some highly unusual, very telltale markings on it. Notice the flat section near the top of the stone marked on the right and the long scrape marks in the stone marked on the left. These marks don't simply look, don't look, blah, blah, blah. These marks simply don't look as if they had been purposely carved in the walls in any way at all. Another section of Sacsayhuaman bears the number of strange scrape marks and dents on its surface that very much look like tool marks. Interestingly, if you prod a lump of soft clay or cement with the end of a stick and let it dry, you can create marks and dents that look just like these. The stonework at Olean Tambo is nothing less than spectacular. And not by using all our advanced laser and computer systems combined, nor by gathering all the technologies we could muster, could we begin to come even close to achieving what has been done in the construction of these jungle megaliths in ancient times. Hadn't seen these ones, actually. That's yeah. new to me, those yep. ones. Yeah, but again, they just look like tooling marks. Yeah, just tool marks, scrape marks, scoop marks. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're you're shaping the stone, that's the... Yeah, that's well, the, the clay yeah. at the time, yeah. Well, I mean, you think about clay instruments, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. on a smaller scale. That's what you're doing. Exactly. You're manipulating them, you know. Just imagine them on a larger scale. Uh, jungle megaliths of ancient times. Softening the stones seems to be the only logical explanation of how these walls were built. It's the only thing that can adequately explain the precision fit of the stones, which then would be naturally settled snugly together under their own weight, easily creating perfect, perfect and gapless joint. Exactly. On another section of the walls at Ollie and Tambo, we can notice small pots. Oliante Tambo. Oliante Tambo. I just do. Oliante Tambo. Oliante. Yeah. Okay. Oliante Tambo. Oliante Tambo. Oliante Tambo. Okay. Sorry. It's okay. No, we've got to get it right. I mean, it isn't. I think I've heard Oliante Tambo. You know what I mean? Yep. And that's. Anyway. Where are we? We can notice the small plugs protruding from the bottom of each small filling stone between the larger stones, such as you might need see used to provide stability in concrete formwork. It is commonly believed that the protrusions found on the stones in these walls were used to hang gold plating or for tying ropes to for handling. Unfortunately for both of these theories, the protrusions are completely insufficient exactly. Uh, size or shape and are too randomly placed to be effective for either of those uses. That's what I thought too. I've mm-hmm. thought that. They could, however, be formed by making marks in the support structure. And interestingly, when working with a substance of such great weight, such protrusions would, in fact, actually be necessary to prevent any uncontrolled movement of the heavy and wet material 
on the outer face of the wall while it's solidified. True. No one has adequately explained how the people of ancient times built these structures or even know why on earth they would have thought it necessary to go to so much trouble. All we know is that they did because the structures are there and still defy our analysis. Archaeological and documented evidence suggests that the actual builders of these incredible megalithic fortresses may in fact date back to a period of par- far before the Mayans inhabited the area to when the dominant race was the Olmecs. I mean, the Olmec stuff's interesting. And like the big heads, the heads are magnetic. Like mm-hmm. there's all this sort of magnetism stuff related to the Olmecs, yep. um, frequency resonance type stuff. There is also further evidence to suggest that the actual purpose of these structures may have been vastly more profound than simple temples or, fort- temples or fortresses. This will be start- discussed further in a later chapter. So, I mean, that, that, that's carved. That's like steps that are carved. It looks like you're like pushed, yeah. you know, pushed into the, yeah. into the face. Yeah, look at that. And so you look that's at always, the way. Yeah, there are all yeah. these types of scoop marks. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. All right, give me a go, bro. Well, no, I, we, no we're just, we're there. We're there. We're only there. All right. Um, finish we'll, her off. Finish it off. Uh, let's have a look. So this is. So for some of this stuff, I know I've got, most of you guys are audio listeners and thank you very much for that. However, some of this stuff is designed to be watched. So I'm going to just talk about figure 68, um, but it's displaying some scrapings. It's got some markings on there, look like steps. Uh, this, this is a particularly enigmatic stone from Olentotambo wall. Uh, although the surface of the stone is quite rough and could very well have been hewn, it is very difficult to explain the zigzagging pattern on the face of the stone. Yeah. While it is true that the stairway pattern is a motif common to many Mayan structures, notice how the bottom section of the lower zigzag appears to protrude slightly and sagged a little. Yeah, true. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, it seems quite unlikely and somewhat unreasonable to think that something like this would have been purposely carved into the surface of the wall. Other sections look as though as if they had been slapped with blocks or prodded with the end of sticks while the material was still soft and just look at the narrow filler stones between the large stabs, uh, sl- stabs, slabs. I was in the middle of a thought while trying to speak. If you've, Who if are you, you stabbing? Yeah, you're stabbing. <laughs> um, you're stabbing with sticks? Stabbing with sticks. No, but I was thinking, what I was thinking is like, if you, you're trying, these stones are soft, and you're trying to stand them on a wall, right? Yes. And let's pretend giants are doing it. Yes. The easiest way to keep that in place would to use would use like poles. Yeah, you just use a wooden pole, stab it into the soft thing, might put it in the ground. Yep, leave it alone. Come 100%. back, take the pole out, and you're left with a pole mark. Exactly. You know that's it. But yeah. it doesn't matter because it's, it fits together tightly. You're not worried about the face no. for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the the pole marks are relevant. Yep. It is obvious that the ancients actually did know of a way to soften stone. It seems to be the only thing that fits. How else could it have been? Yeah, so you see that. I mean, they could have been, you're holding the stone up with those things too. I don't know. You know, like it's it's, it's so weird. Well, what I see with that is, have you seen those, um, it's like a, it's a tool used for like lifting like five bricks yes. and it works under the weight of the bricks. Yes. So as you pull up on the handle, there's, it, draws it actually, the bricks in, it yeah. actually yeah. draws it in. Yeah. That's what I see there. 
I don't know if there are matching nubs on the other sides of the stones. Good question. Yeah. But like, that's what I'm seeing is like a, some kind of tool that under its own weight just sort of hooks into that softened stone and mm-hmm. then you place it mm-hmm. because we're talking about giants here. I'm, I'm thinking about giants. Yeah, giants. We're talking about giants. Placing those in place. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe some kind of crane technology. I don't know, but... Mm. You know, you can only throw so many theories at it at once. So yeah. I'm not going to go like stone softening leaves and vibrational like weightlessness technology yeah, sort of thing. I'm just going to stick with one. So I'm going to go with really big dudes. Yeah. Giants and yeah. Well, you know, dinosaurs got really big. So mm-hmm. why couldn't people? That's right. If, if they were at the right time. That's right. Maybe Actually, 300 million years. 300 million years ago. <laughs> One of the most popular articles on the uh, page has actually been the one about dinosaurs and humans. So mm. for lucky number seven, let's make sure we let's do that. Let's delve one. into that. Yeah. Local legends repeatedly maintained that the walls were erected by giants, gods who raised the stone in a single night. Legends also tell of how the edges of stones would be rubbed with the juice of a special plant, which would soften the stone like clay and thus perfect the joint. To think that simply because we have not yet located the small crimson plant Fawcett spoke of in the myriad of unknown species that have yet to be discovered in the Amazon jungle certainly does not mean that such a plant does not exist. To rule something out completely because it has not been found yet would be nothing short of foolhardy. With such an attitude, we would never have discovered electricity. That's a given. Yeah, I can see that. One of the more unfortunate things in the dilemma, though, is that time is fast running out. We may now never find any such plant. I want when I thought about that, I was wondering if there's ever been like these dudes running the bulldozers through the jungle, and all of a sudden the bulldozer falls apart Why underneath. The tracks fall yeah. apart. Yeah. They're like, "Why are the tracks breaking?" Yeah. Oh, because this damn little pesky plant That's dissolved right. them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be interesting. Yeah, to know if there's any accounts of that. It would be. So interesting. It's, it's annoying. People don't keep diaries like they used to. You know? No, 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 no. I don't care. Uh, Not not now that the main Amazon basin has been ruined by American oil interests and the remaining forests are still being destroyed by the rate of at least three football fields a day. Pretty sure that's more now. Um, It's also, it's almost like they're trying to make sure all evidence of such a thing is destroyed. But then one should never attribute an action to to malice when it can adequately explain by stupidity. (laughs) Don't read that again. But then one should never attribute an action to malice when it can be adequately explained by stupidity. Or greed. Your greed, yeah. You know, throw greed in there throw as well. Greed, they may not purposely greed. be destroying things, but they'll destroy things if it, they can make money That's out of right. something else. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we need to destroy a jungle that we're never going to see or go anywhere near. All yeah. right, cool. Who, who cares? Let's yeah. make money. Yeah. Let's grow cows. Yeah. Though when one is considering the actions, motives, and attitudes of modern governments, unfortunately, usually it's the former. Such a plant may have already been become a victim of industry, lost forever in the technological crunch. But then thanks to a remarkable man, we may not need to find it. Recent discoveries and work by Dr. Joseph Davidovitz of, Davidovitz of the Geopolymer Institute have produced some remarkable insights into the process the ancients may well have used to construct these amazing fortresses. I reckon we leave it there. That's a cliffhanger. 
Dun, dun, dun. Because this, I'd say this is going to be. For those, for those looking. Oh, oh, hang on a minute. It's only just that to the chapter four. Do we, do we, do we? Go on, mate. All right. Go Amazingly, on. a recent. So softening stones with plant. With plant extracts. extracts. Amazingly, a recent ethnological discovery has actually shown that some witch doctors of the Huanaka, Huanka tradition. Huanka? Huanka? Huanka yeah. tradition remarkably used no tools in the making of small stone objects, but in fact still use a chemical solution made from plant extracts to actually soften the stone material. Oh, you got me. Yep. Did it eventually, according to Dr. Davidovitz in a paper. That's why I wanted to take over before, man. Yeah. I was like, I'm dying. I need to do something. <laughs> according to Dr. Davidovitz in a paper that was written by Dr. Davidovitz, A. Bonnet, and A. M. Marriott, uh, and presented to the 21st International Symposium of Archaeometry at Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York, USA, 1981. What I like about Max is he comes with receipts. Mm. And I quote, The starting stone material, silicate or silico aluminate, is dissolved by the organic extracts and the viscous slurry is then poured into a mould where it hardens. This technique, when mastered, allows a sort of cement to be made by dissolving rocks, statues, which could have been made by the technique of the pre-Incan Huanaka. I like Huanaka by dissolution. I know it's wrong, but I can't help it. (laughs) Followed by geopolymeric agglomeration. Dude, let me correct myself. I don't correct you. (laughs) Followed by geopolymeric agglomeration are found to contain coaxalate in the stone. No, CA oxalate. I think that's calcium, CA oxalate. CA, so yeah, well, CA, CA is calcium, calcium, isn't it? Yeah. The trio then proposed the hypothesis that the large stones found in the Mayan fortresses and monuments were in reality artificial and had in fact been agglomerated with a binder after certain rocks had been slowly disaggregated. Jesus, some words to finish There's this one. <laughs> syllables in here, man. <laughs> An idea that fits very well with what the walls look like and also happens to be in total agreement with local legends and traditions such as those that were told to force it the group then even went on to present to the meeting some actual samples of stone that had dissolved and re-aggregated themselves to prove it and i quote we present here the first results on plant extracts on the dissolution of disaggregation of calcium carbonate containing rocks. Biotooling action is what we call it. The feasibility of chemically working calcium carbonate with various carboxylic acids found in plants, acetic, oxalic, and citric acid has been studied. Maximum biotooling action is obtained with a solution containing vinegar, acetic acid. Oop, that's the, the boom of doom. Oxalic acid and citric acid. Did you, they hang on? You did, know what we're talking about here. It's just the combination of bicarb and vinegar yeah. when it fizzes. Yeah. That's exactly what they're talking about. Except they're talking about calcium carbonate 
like seashells are yeah. calcium carbonate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coral is calcium carbonate. Yeah, so yeah. they're talking about like having it in a rock form and then dissolving it with acid. That's what they're talking about here. Right. I thought I thought we might have just been getting a recipe. I was getting excited. <laughs> yes, for salt and vinegar chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that translation. Because I'm like, dude, <laughs> we're making stone we're melting making, stuff let's, tomorrow. <laughs> let's do it. Um, now I'm not sure if the M, the capital M, is molar. It possibly is, which is, that- is the strength of acid. Tea measure strength. Oh, it acids. is too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, the, in the dangerous good stuff, when you get acids, it. it's, it's so it's you M, can yeah, have yeah. different types of acids. Usually, form with fall within a realm of strength. Yes, sort of thing. You can't yes. you can't get weak hydrochloric acid. You yes. get diluted. You get diluted. But it's that's still right. it's still like whatever the molar is of hydrochloric acid. Yeah, when they make hydrochloric hydrochloric acid, it is at a certain strength and yes. then it's diluted. And then you dilute there. it down yeah, from yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't change the strength of the acid. It's no. just that the acid is now diluted into, into a different parts solution. Per million or whatever exactly. it is. Yeah. The great surprise was actually to discover very ancient references to their use since Neolithic times for working materials which are very hard but easily attacked by acids such as chalk. Thus, a bas relief from the tomb of Mera at Saqqara, Egypt, 6th dynasty, 3 millennium BC, Egypt, shows the hollowing out of Egyptian alabaster, mm. which is calcium carbonate. Yeah. Vases by a liquid contained in a water, um, water skin yeah. or bladder. An experiment of interest was to compare the biotooling technique with the shaping of a hole using a steel tool and the quartz sand technique recommended by prehistorians. Yeah. The hole resulting from sand abrasion has rough walls, whereas biotooling gives a smooth finish. The work by Dr. Davidovitz is nothing short of brilliant and also very refreshing. It's also interesting to note how quickly the problem was solved once the right approach to dealing with it has been adapted. But now we just need... So it's a great example of how it can work. But now we just need the same kind of... uh, We need a liquid that can do the same thing to granite. To granite. Yeah, I mean, this or is, basalt. I thought, so for those that are, that's an ankh, that's an alabaster ankh, and it is actually made in Egypt. Yep. And it came from the same, you know, same mines. They're still using the same mines. Now, yep. I don't know how that was made, but that is, that is. Alab- calcium that's carbonate. Carbonate, calcium yep. carbonate. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. Looks like it was cut, but I mean, I had they make the hole in the center. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, be interesting whether or not they use that water, you know, some sort of acid sand technique to make the hole and then made it deeper from there. Possibly. Yeah. Or it could have been a mould. Looks like it might be a mould too, but. Could have been. Could have been hand carved. Mm. It's not perfect. You know what I mean? So. But anyway. Yeah, no, that's an awesome piece, man. Yeah. I wish I had one. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is literally from Egypt. So yeah, that's what he's awesome. talking about. Uh, where were we, mate? You were here. 
There is now very little doubt about how the ancients actually built these incredible structures and indeed softened or perhaps melting the stone has always really been the only possible explanation. Mm -hmm. The ancient Mayans were indeed quite capable of producing very large quantities of the acids that were used by Dr. Davidovitz in his experiments from many plants that were quite common to the region in the distant past. Plants such as fruits, potatoes, maize, rhubarb, rumex, agave, americana, opuntia, ficus, indica, and garlic, to name a few. Mm. It is highly feasible that the stones were quarried, then broken or crushed to manageable sizes Mm -hmm. for transportation to the locations and re-aggregated on site while being cast back into the megalithic slabs we now see. Cast is an interesting term, like how we casting the polygonal masonry. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't. I'm following what he's saying, but how do you cast? It's, yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, maybe it's like Plato. Yeah, maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah, you just start with a slurry and you keep adding these broken up pieces, and the ball keeps getting getting bigger, but also firmer. Well, you're also malleable as you add stone. Like if you think about like making flour, got to get your mixture of water and flour correct, sort of thing. So as you're adding stone, your mixture would start drying out, becoming firmer. Mm. So then you add a little bit more to dissolve some more, you know, yada yada yada, until you build it up to a point, and now it all just aggregates under its own weight. Yeah, yeah, that's where you get the sunken. The sunken look. Yes. Yes. Imagine, imagine like, imagine doing it with concrete, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're hand forming, you have to let the mix get stiff enough so as it will stack on top of itself. Yeah. Well, I remember when we used to do, uh, back in my early 20s, I built pools for a little while. Yep. And you'd have the concrete truck rock up. Yep. And yeah. You got to test a slump. Yeah. Got to, yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, you got to, yeah, exactly. You got to test a test slump. Test a slump. Once it got sprayed, they piss it up too much. That's right. It's yeah. wet and sloppy, and it just falls. And yeah. once it got sprayed, you could have a you know if the if the slump was right, you could like go and take a ten minute break. But that's all you've got. Yeah, you know, you've oh yeah, dude, yeah. Get down in there, and then you got the you with the scrapers and making steps all and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. But yeah, it was within like a minute if you didn't get in there. Yeah. It yeah. No, basically, concrete waits for no man. That's right. You for yeah. yeah. I worked in that shit for too long. I know. It's, it's yeah. great for losing weight. Yes, it is a rough it's, job, it's, man. It's amazing. It's a rough job. You don't get to eat while no. you, while the concrete's no. wet. You don't get to eat. No, you don't. All right, where are we up to? After all, so after all, since we have seen that they certainly had and knew about the means to do it, it somehow seems absurd to think they would not have made the use of the knowledge. Once again, the simplest. The most likely explanation is usually correct. But all of this knowledge still does not answer the fundamental questions. Who actually built them and why? I tell you what, and that's the end of that chapter. The next chapter is a valley of kings. Looks like we're going to Egypt. However, look, that's that was excellent. That yeah. was the best detailed, because, I mean, I know we had talked about the plants, melting stone, We've done a little bit of research on it, but see, you know, look in in the ideal world where UTC has its own compound. Mm. After reading this, do you know what we're doing? 
we're getting all sorts of acids. We're dissolving unk. We're just yeah, yeah, exactly. We're getting <laughs> that unk cal- is getting no, that's dissolved. not that's nothing. We're gonna get some calcium carbonate. This isn't going anywhere, but we're gonna get some calcium carbonate. We're gonna get samples of stone Let's and we're gonna marble. Use, yeah, marble. Same it's, thing. It's the same same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah. And that's what we're doing. A yep. couple of we go to an old construction site, get some bench tops that are broken, and we're lining them up and we're making potions, man. Yeah. <laughs> until we well, figure it it's, out. It's funny actually. <laughs> it's funny actually we we're speaking of this. What is the name? There is uh, there's a name of a um synthetic marble bench tops. Um, yes, is there it, is. Where that? Yeah, that, is it travertine or is they, that is I that a natural know, one? No idea, but they reaggregate it. They yeah, re-aggregate exactly. It, yeah. So, what process is that using? Yeah, what let's are you dig, doing there? Like, let's dig into that. That's common knowledge, that yeah. shit. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sure we could find a, a recipe. All right, man. Well, oh, man, this that was cool, dude. Woo, uh, it I is like late at night, late. my friend. It is, it is late. late. Everyone can see the time, so we are done. We see my fucking eyes, man. Jesus Christ. We're diddly done, mate. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, number six in the bag. Number six was done. See Thanks, guys. Cheers. Have I burned up? Have I black on the ground? Will I fight back?
burn out? Have I blackened the ground? Will I fight back, find my strength?